um, the brave churches are ones that are willing to really connect with their communities and with each other. I say when I went into the pastorate that I wanted to to be a pastor because I wanted to know and love people well. And I think that that doesn't, that's, that's can only happen when we, we let go of a lot of like the churchy institutional stuff. You face the whirlwind, you taste the toxic rain, and you're still standing. Hey there, everybody. How are you doing? Welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. It is... I think today is the last day of May at episode release. So happy Memorial Day to the United States and happy May 31st or maybe June 1st, depending on where you are in the globe listening to this. But I am happy that you are here. So a couple quick PSA. So I have at least one, maybe two or three new designs to run up in the store. I am still working through that. I wasn't happy with the storefront for the merchandise. And so, yeah. Be patient with me. I'm working on it. When it comes back, I'd like it to be something that I'm a little happier with. And that's not where we were last time. So my apologies for that. Now, this summer is going to be crazy for me. And as I alluded to a few weeks ago, I need to make sure I make space for myself to recharge. And most importantly, for my family and my wife, my kids. And so you will see some repeat episodes. This is a new one this week. And then next week, I'm going to bring back one of my favorite guests uh, for a repeat episode. So we'll call those like, what, vintage? Vintage episodes? I don't know if a four-year-old podcast can have vintage anything, but you know what I mean. I'm rambling. Here we go. Years ago, when I started this show, my goal was to have conversations for me that I wish that I could ask in a church or I wished that I would have been able to ask in a church back in the day and just see what happens, like where I grow and learn and how that changes the way I view God. And it has been so good for me, but that's just me. So I brought on a guest and we had a conversation about that, but at an institutional level, like what it work, what it looks like for a church to bravely step into intentional conversations that are around that premise. And I think it can be scary for churches. Shoot. I know it was scary for me. Still sometimes is. But I think it's healthy and it's intentional and needed. Very much so. And so with no further ado, welcome to the summer. Maybe your kids are out of school. Maybe they're not. Maybe you don't care. Doesn't matter. We're going to do the thing. Let's go. Elizabeth Hagen. Here we go. Someone on Twitter put us in connection with one another, and then we've circled around one another for like what two months, and that's my fault. Honestly, I send a message and I forget about it. Just ask well, my wife. Um, but welcome, <laughs> welcome to the show. I'm glad I'm here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that conversation happened today. I was talking to her, and she's like, "Did you see my text message?" Which she had sent six or seven hours earlier. Mm-hmm. And my answer was nope. I, I can look at it at the red light if you want. When we get to a red light, right. I'll look at it. And she's like, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm the worst <laughs> at responding to anything. So it's not just you. 
No, it, I'm, I'm married to that. I have to go put um, a form in front of his face and say, sign this now if we want. <laughs> I, I don't know. I can be so organized at work. And I think when I'm just not at work, that part of my brain needs to rest. Right. So that's what I'm going to say. The world needs all types to make it go around. That's what I say. So. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, what would you say the answer to be when someone says, what are you or who are you? Like, what is that answer? Which I'm aware that that's extremely open-ended. So you can run with that wherever you want. Sure. I think the first word I would say is I'm a pastor. That's something that's been a part of my identity for, I guess, the past, I think it's 15 years now. I guess I'm getting mm. old. Um, <laughs> I grew up in a tradition where women were not encouraged to be pastors and they were not ordained. And it was a really big deal for me, <laughs> the, the way that I found myself to affirming congregations and made my way to ordination. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and so, yeah, and I was ordained American Baptist. Do you know the difference between the two? No, but I grew up independent, regular Baptist. So, oh, but, cool. You're like one of the hundred. <laughs> I'm from types. way West Texas. Um <laughs> I don't know yeah, much that, about was, the difference between those two. It was a really two. big deal to me when that finally happened um, because I had felt really interested in all things spiritual when I was young. I was kind of geeky like that. But the, I was always told that I had to marry a mm. minister or maybe I could go to another country um, <laughs> because that's where we send strong women. <laughs> if you would just immigrate, you're more than yeah. allowed to be. And so I started um, actually trying to, you know, have an apprenticeship of that. Like I saved, I'm, I'm telling you, like I'm the geekiest, you know, former evangelical, but I worked at Chick-fil-A cause that's what mm. all good mm. evangelicals yeah. do when I was in high school and I saved yeah. my Chick-fil-A money. And I went to Kenya and Tanzania to study under missionaries when I was 18 by mm. myself. That and is... it ended up being this like really dreadful experience because these people that I had idolized, you know, I'd grown up like missionaries are like the best Christians in the world. And I found out, I went to this huge mission conference and they were some of the most miserable people I'd ever met. And they, they really weren't kind in general. And so my life kind of shifted at that point. <laughs> and it's kind of a miracle I found my way back into something um, mm. that is ministry related. But I'm really happy I did because it's an important part of what I do now. What would um, you say the biggest thing the differences between an American Baptist and a Southern Baptist is because I don't know those differences. Oh, you don't know. It's a cool story. And it's um, the church I was actually ordained at was Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., which is the founding church of the American Baptist Church. And it was where in the 1840 somethings, the Baptist of the North and the Baptist of the South came together and they were arguing over slavery as a country was. And then the Baptist said, well, we believe in slavery in the South and we don't in the North. And so they separated the mm. way the country did. So the American Baptist was used to be called the Northern Baptist. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Well, I knew so, the history of the Southern Baptist. Now. I just didn't ever, I'm from Texas, so we don't learn about anything in the North. Yeah. It's not even in the books. I mean, I grew up in Tennessee. I knew nothing about it until I, I found myself in Washington. And But it's kind of cool. They, they've always sort of stood for, you know, more social justice, equality issues yeah. from that from the beginning. But yeah. Um, besides being a pastor, I'm I'm a mom and I'm an author. My first book was about called Birth, Finding Grace Through Infertility. It was about our journey of of making our way into parenthood. And so I'm really passionate about adoption because that's how my daughter found us. And 
I'm also really interested in orphan care because of some work that my husband and I have done through some of his jobs he's had through the years. And I started a foundation several years ago called Our Courageous Kids that helps kids who've grown up in international orphanages be able to have money they need to be able to go to college or to have mental health um, Mm. support because of the trauma that happens to kids in these settings, you know, giving them an opportunity for education is one thing, but if you don't heal the past and it doesn't really matter. And anyway, that's something I've been involved in for, I think about the past five years and it's been really cool. And we've had some students um, live with us. We had a student who was going to college in the U S quarantine with us during COVID lockdown. So we had a new family member for all that time. For the long haul. Um, For the long haul, yeah. Um, I make really good Kenyan chapati, which is this really neat, like, flatbread. Kind of has its roots in India that I learned from our one of our Kenyan daughters. And um, How long were you in the Virginia, D.C. area? Those, that's where I, so I actually live out here in Charlottesville. Or oh, awesome, yeah. Yeah, I'm not there now. I'm, I'm on a sabbatical year of sorts um, down in Georgia with some of our family. But my roots are in D.C. and... Um, um, you know, that's where I've been all my adult life. So, yeah. yeah. The book that you've written, I just want to also be clear. I haven't read your first book. Um, no, I, that's fine. Um, that's fine. Yeah. Though you reference it off and on. So I have a feeling I know a bit about what it's about in, in the little bit that you spoke about in the one chapter in this mm-hmm. book. But as I read through the book, when I finished it and I looked at the table of contents, I basically f- realized that every single one of your chapters is effectively an episode of the show. Like, the things yeah, that people are like, shh, we don't, we don't, we're good people here and we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. So <laughs> we can talk about that on Wednesday night fellowship after everybody leaves. Right, right. <laughs> and yeah. and it's kind of hard now. I want to talk about all those things, you know, <laughs> but yeah. I can't, I can't talk too fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the idea of the fact that we don't, we aren't very good and our faith communities about talking about real things, which is something you're passionate about. I know um, is something that I developed a real interest in, especially after my book birth um, came out um, in 2016. And I was doing what authors do, you know, you speak at conferences and churches and things. And I had people tell me, please don't talk about that. (laughs) And I'm like, you invited me to talk about my book. What am I supposed to say? I didn't read the book. (laughs) Like sing a song or (laughs) do a thing, say a prayer. I'm like, that's my topic. And they said, well, that's just, that's a little too personal, you know? Yeah. And, um, or, you know, they would say it's just for young people. You know, we, we have a bunch of old people in our church group or something. And, so I had to figure out another way, you know, to keep talking about something, you know, I wanted people to know about. And so I started doing these um, grief workshops where I would talk about all the things we don't talk about in church and and have people tell their stories. And I mean, I just was, it came to be so clear that we just, there's so many things we don't talk about <laughs> and that maybe our congregations need more tools about how to begin to um open up those discussions um, yeah. because do it's you, such a shame. Do you think that there was a time or place that the churches actually did encourage conversation of this manner and that it, in just your experience, your training, you're a minister, you talk to other ministers or pastors or mm-hmm. reverend, I don't know what the word is. It's, it's, it's whatever it's the good. word is. Um, <laughs> that maybe, have we ever done it better? Because I, I, 
I see a lot of like communities, like podcast communities having conversations like this and a lot of people yeah. email in, but do, I only know about my church. You know what I mean? Do you feel like there was a time we've done it better than what we do now, or is it maybe getting better? Well, I think that there are pockets of communities that talk about some of these things. And that's a lot of the work I did for putting this book together. I, I sought out innovative communities around the country that were talking about these topics and what that looked like and how they integrated that into their, their community life. But I, that's a really great question. Like historically, like from church history, have we always been such a closed uh, bunch? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, when your your whole system, you know, gets to be such a institutional hierarchical, you know, especially when it's just men in charge, you know, yeah, there's a lot of like toe the company line that mm. goes on. Yeah. But you know, one thing that someone asked me recently, they said, you know, it seems like people can talk about this stuff like on Dr. Phil <laughs> easier than they can. Well, he has that Texas drawl. You just have to change your accent. Yeah. And then, it, and then it's acceptable. Right. <laughs> so the churches that would tell you, don't talk about that. Did you just do it anyway or not show up or what would happen there? Well, you know, you, you tone it down when you have to, but I mean, I, I, I had many occasions over that period of time where I was asked to give sermons and, I kind of got tired of hearing my own sermons, but I would give sermons where I'd use the word infertility and, and talk about my own struggles in the context of, uh, of the sermon I was giving. And in many cases, people told me afterwards, that's the first time they'd ever heard that word uttered in church. Mm. And that felt to me like a real shame because the statistics say that one in eight couples um, struggle yeah. um, to conceive. And so that's everyone, you know, and everybody knows someone and, um, in the case of, you know, saying, well, it's just an issue for um, young people. I had 60 somethings come up to me on several occasions and tell me about their struggles with miscarriage or tell me about how they were one of the first families in the U.S. that had IVF and mm. how they were so embarrassed to admit that to their friends. And so, yeah. you know, that's just one topic, but I think there's just so much that we feel unnecessary shame about um mm -hmm. in a faith community because we're we talk so much about i don't know what how you grew up but i mean in the churches where i was raised we were really good at theology or bible stories <laughs> things <laughs> like that but we didn't really talk about people and like how real life affects people and then how you find your way in faith because of say someone in your family went to jail or because you know your best friend has an eating disorder and or and someone else in my high school that was one of my good friends used to cut herself and it's like mm. oh gosh we don't say that aloud mm. you know yeah um, i don't i don't know what my old church growing up was good at without being really sarcastic i've never actually given that a lot of thought i'm certain they were good at something and and still are they still exist maybe they were good at casseroles everybody mm. well we're a baptist church we could cook um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think most churches can cook. I've been to a lot of church meals and, and most churches, they, they come with that A game. I want to pivot a bit. So in your work or in this book specifically, you lay out at least five, maybe more like ground rules for when faith communities want to have conversations about things in a way that hopefully you don't divide the church into another church because we're really good at, what's my pastor say? We're really good at 
multiplication by subtraction. Like we have, mm. we have 28 yeah. more churches, but no more believers in the city. We just, right. but we have more churches. We're, we're really, we're growing, we're doing it. Um, right. There's step two though, and I highlighted it. I don't know how that works. And so I'll, I'll read it back to you. How does one, as either someone facilitating uncomfortable conversations or me having one, especially because that's all we do anymore is yell about politics mm-hmm. or masks mm-hmm. or COVID or guns or whatever. You put in here that you have to learn how to own your intentions and your impact and know that your words can hurt other people. And I feel like most people understand that because I've seen mm-hmm. my words cut people, but I don't know how to always own my intentions and more importantly, my impact, at, mm. least, at least in the moment. So can you rip that specific thing apart a bit? Well, I think a lot of people say as an excuse, like, well, just don't take this personally. You know, mm. like, I, I mean, well, just, you know, take it, take my word at a, you know, a grain of salt or whatever mm-hmm. people use as caveats. But the real issue at stake is that when we're talking about things with each other, sometimes, and maybe even oftentimes, we say things, even if we didn't mean to, <laughs> that hurt people. And I think what we tend to not do very well in the church is to own the fact that we could be offensive to someone, even if we didn't mean to be offensive. And it doesn't mean that we're going to realize that in the moment, but you know, an example, when I was teaching this to um, my congregation while I was writing it, we were talking about this and we, you know, it was fresh on people's minds and we were sitting in a church council meeting, you know, everybody's favorite thing, (laughs) administrative (laughs) life at a church. And, you know, someone ended up, you know, was, you know, waxing and waning about something and, and made a comment that another member of the group felt like was really um, sexist. And he didn't mean it to be, um, or at least he said he didn't mean it to be. And this was a conversation then that they were able to have afterwards, kind of knowing that we were in the groove of this sort of brave space church and able to understand the fact that what you said was not cool to me. What you said made me feel belittled and, and could you, you know, just know what you reconsider what you said in the future and maybe not say that again. And, and I think that that is so powerful. I mean, because it opens up vulnerable Um, strains of conversation and opens up opportunities for people to see how their words affect people. Yeah, we may not mean it, but it doesn't make it any less hurtful. A question that kept bubbling up as I read through your, your book is, I encounter people that will not do that. And I think that's probably why I circled that, where they're like, yeah, I hear that, but you're just, they'll use a pejorative, a liberal, a whatever, whatever. And they're just mm-hmm. not going to do it. And they're also not going to leave mm-hmm. the church or my family or my friend's community, mm-hmm. or maybe I work with them. And like, how do you navigate that when you're like, yeah, we need to have this conversation. And you have told me you're not going to change, mm-hmm. but I still need to say something. Like, how do you navigate mm-hmm. through that, especially in a way that doesn't break other relationships? Well, I think it begins with a bigger picture of the conversation and of the relationship. I mean, I, I wrote this as a, a guide that a group of people would do it um, with intentionality. It's not just your, you know, you can't just take this and put the concept on a larger group without, I think, that intentional covenant that you're going to make with each other to say, this is a sacred space. This is a set of smart space. We're going to practice something that's not natural to any of us. We'd rather just take our toys and go home, all <laughs> of us, right? And so um, we're going to do this thing together and we're 
we're going to make mistakes and we're not going to always get it right, but we want to practice this different way of being with each other, knowing that we may not be able to practice it all the time. It may be too much or too hard, but that we, we come to this, the, the brave space. We come to a brave church group and we begin living out this work in a different way. Of the topics, so I've got them over here. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to bounce around quite a bit, um, Go ahead. if that works. So you ask the question, what does your church believe about submission? And you ask it in the question on domestic violence. I believe it's in yeah. domestic violence. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. and I will say that's not something that I talk about. And I'm happy to say it's also not something that necessarily my wife and I struggle with, but I, I know and I hear stories that that's not always the case. And you see this stuff during quarantine that those cases have risen as other cases of other things have, because you're, you're, you're together and you're angry and mm-hmm. fearful and violent. What do you mean about like a, a theology or a doctrine of submission, which those are my words morphed onto your mm-hmm. sentence, but what mm-hmm. does that mean for someone listening? And they're like, I don't, what do you mean submission and how does that relate to domestic violence? And then how do we kind of navigate those waters? Yeah. So um, in the, domestic violence chapter, I, I lay out some theological issues that really, to ask ourselves questions about how these theological teachings that we have in place, not every church has these, but many do, how they lead to a culture that allows um, domestic violence to go in unchecked. And in the in the case of submission, it's this idea, you know, that there's men and then there's women mm-hmm. below below them and that, you know, the man is the head of the house or the man is the head of the church and women's voices, all domestic violence cases are not necessarily men against women, but the percentages tell us that most of them are. Mm. And so if a woman who was in a church that had a strong doctrine of submission experienced abuse emotional, physical, psychological abuse from her partner. It would probably be a married partner. Um, (laughs) She would feel like I can't say no, you know, like this idea of like, I can't speak up or I can't go against my husband. It's God's will that I allow him to be the head of my household. Or in the case of pastoral leadership, knowing that you couldn't go seek counsel from a woman who may be on the pastoral staff or in the leadership of the church. Yeah because they simply wouldn't be there. And how when we don't have women in on equal level and we don't have women in equal leadership positions, how that just allows a culture of, of patriarchy to sweep domestic violence um, really under the rug. There's another part, and I think it's just a few pages after that. So I don't know how to even say this word because it's a Greek word. So you have four loves, and I've also never read this book by C.S. Lewis. I'm ashamed. I have mm-hmm. it literally over there, but I just haven't read it. Um, mm-hmm. So can you rip apart what storge? So there's, for those listening, there's philia love, which is friendship, eros, which is romantic, agape, which is the one that everybody talks about because we got, we mm-hmm. only talk about the apostle Paul and, um, and the gospel of John in churches. We, we know that that's all that we talk about. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is storge, is that even the way you say it? Like, what is that? I mean, I'm the worst. I, I, I like to greet pass fail. So I'm, I'm not the expert on how you say things, yeah. but I'm just going to say storage. And Perfect. I, I was so happy, um, in finding this resource and connecting it to the sexuality chapter, because I know in so many contexts, the issue of, you know, are you for the LBT, I can never, LBT, G, it's too late at night. You know what I mean? Yes. 
Please help me. <laughs> LGBTQ. Oh man, you're so brilliant. Thank you. Um, that, uh, you know, either you're for or against that community and that can be so divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in churches, you know, churches split, denominations are, are splitting, United Methodist Church is splitting mm-hmm. next year officially over this issue. And it becomes such a game. Wait, of, it is splitting? I thought they were like voting. Well, I think they've already voted and they're going to finish the deal um, next oh. year. I'm not United Methodist, so I shouldn't be speaking on their behalf, but huh. that's. I'm going to Google, I'm going to Google that. I'm going to figure that out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's such a big, like splitting issue, but you know, my idea about this book is like, how do you stay in conversations, mm-hmm. uh, in a, in a healthy way? And, and this idea of like, you may not be able to have the kind of partnership kind of love for someone or deep friendship, um, love that CS Lewis talks about. Um, but you can have the storage love, which is the love of, of just common experiences. I mean, he writes about, you know, how you can be happy <laughs> for, um, you know, someone that gives you your coffee and that you see on a regular basis or mm. someone, you know, I think about church, you know, the older gentleman who passes you candy, you know, as you walk in the door, I don't, uh, I had a sweet experience with an older man growing up. I always loved his peppermint, you know, and he might grow up, you know, I don't know what happened to him, but you know, he might be the person when I'm a teenager who thought that I was just a terrible heathen, but you know, I still have <laughs> affection for him because of that sweet experience we had together, you know, yeah. um, sharing candy. And so um, we can find ways to be in community with people that we completely disagree because we're all human beings. And there's certain experiences that we can share with one another that we have um, familiarity with one another that that really do build our love. I mean, that's one thing I've heard a lot about related to COVID since we've all been stuck in our houses. And so we haven't had that sense of community with the Starbucks barista that we used to have or with yeah. the crop and guard at our kids' school because we just kind of stay with our own bubble of people and um, how much we can't all wait to get out in the world. And we're reminded again, I think at this moment, like how, how much those little connections of community um, Mm. and the love that we share for these people. Like I'm, I love the post office. I can't even tell you. (laughs) That's with the post office. Absolutely not. That was like a small child. So I know like all the postal clerks by name because I always think of reasons to mail people (laughs) things. You know, and like, you know, we're never going to hang out outside the post office, but I have like affection for them and, and how excited they are to, to see me and mail my back. We've reached that random point in the episode that I've got to do this because capitalism is the beast that requires feeding and you amazing people continue to help the show grow and I got to help pay for that. So hang tight and let's do this. Not the falling, but it's the staying down. Wait for I will say, so during all of that, about this time last year when they shut everything down, I can't tell you at the bank how often a lot of our elderly clients would call and they would just talk for like an hour because they mm. come in every day to get their money, but they're there for 40 minutes. They just come in to talk. But I missed a lot of them. And when we could open the doors back up, I'm like, come on in here. How are you doing? There is quite a bit of that. I want to ask this. How do I ask this question? I'm just going to ask it. I don't know how to be. um, I don't know what the word is. It doesn't matter.
is there a way to have conversations about this where at the end both sides feel that they're progressing because inherently it feels like when we're working our way through an argument there needs to be movement left or right but is there a way in your experience that as you've helped churches kind of guide through being a brave church and actually having conversations with intention mm-hmm. that someone that that the two sides begin at opposites and they still end at opposites but they're both progressing if that makes any yeah. sense at all i think it has a lot to do with like the common goal of what you're trying to achieve if you're trying to win people to your side then i mean that's the only marker right of success mm-hmm. um one of the groups that i did some research on and talk about in the last chapter of the book is called better angels um are you familiar Mm-mm. with them it's um it's a group that w- began uh, in 2016 after the Trump election um, to help bring people together who voted for Trump and voted for Clinton. And they started with a weekend retreat where they had Democrats and Republicans equal number together in the same place, very passionate ones for a weekend. <laughs> and they had that goal of like, can we can we move the needle any farther? And they had such a successful time together that people they really felt like in this, the way they were organizing conversation um, and and people were actually committing to spend time together, not just like soundbiting each other, that they it, it birthed this kind of national nonprofit and movement. And I went to one of their all day workshop um, and they called it Team Red and Team Blue. And we had opportunities to talk about what we thought the others thought of us or what we thought of them, talk about stereotypes and prejudice but then we had to eat together and (laughs) uh (laughs) and process um the groups and it was a really beautiful experience because you're reminded that people are more than these are my five points of what i believe on these particular issues but these are like human beings sitting in front of me and i think in our age when we're just spouting at one another on the internet all the time um and we we've lost a sense of actually knowing people and, and not beginning a conversation where it's like, okay, what do you believe on this issue? Okay. I'm on your team or I'm not, but you really get to know the person as a human being. And you talk about the ways that you can connect. I mean, it's not like you're going to birth a relationship with someone who's very different from you overnight. But if you commit to the process, um, I think beautiful things can happen, especially under the umbrella of a faith context, when you know that you're all gathered there with similar intentions, Mm -hmm. you have faith in God and you want to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus and you have sacred text and you want to use your gifts to be helpful to people in the world. There's a lot of common ground you already have in that context. And so the more that we can humanize each other, I think beautiful things really do. Yeah. And I think that's a good goal. Another relatively I don't know, devil's advocate question. So all of the research shows that the church is, a. my pastor said this before, that uh, he, he, if he was being tongue-in-cheek, the role of a pastor is to manage the hospice care of the church as it slowly seems to be declining in at least America um, right. year after year. And so I have to think that the overall bulk of the churches are not practicing or even really care to practice a brave type of mentality as we try to work through with intention as a pastor, what do you feel like that sunset is if we can't actually learn how to actually hear one another before like it's irreparably 
damaged as like a faith community just across like states, the cities, like, you know, does that make any sense at all? That, that question? Yeah. I mean, it's a complex, it's a complex question. Um, for sure. I agree with you that yes, you know, I, I'm a part, my ordination is a part of the, what I would call the bubble of the mainline Protestant church, mm-hmm. you know, in the fifties and sixties used to be where all the people were. Yeah. Now it's not. Um, most of the congregations I've pastored through the years have a majority of people that could be my parents <laughs> mm-hmm. and not my peers, um, which is fun, but not doesn't look good right. for the future. Yeah. Um, but I think that the churches I know that are vibrant and I would call brave are those that are willing to go beyond sort of the institutional gatekeeping type things, or we always do these holidays, or we always do it like this, or this is the pattern of our life together. Um, The brave churches are ones that are willing to really connect with their communities and with each other. I say when I went into the pastorate that I wanted to, to be a pastor because I wanted to know and love people well. And I think that that doesn't, that's, that's can only happen when we, we let go of a lot of like the churchy institutional stuff. The church that I um, just finished um, leading um, actually just a couple months ago Mm. made a very brave decision. And I won't, I don't want to say it's just because they did brave church as the launch, but I I mean, but, and they, they really, um, I mean, they have receipts. They didn't break it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because they helped me write the book, but they made this really cool decision, which I am so proud of them for, of morphing their administrative life um, into a nonprofit separate from the church um, and allowing their property management and all their rentals to be given to another entity. And now they're just a faith community that doesn't have ties to the building, although they still meet in the same building, but they gave up their rental income and all their major big administrative strongholds and gave um, money from their endowment to hire the executive director of this new nonprofit Mm. that they helped to create. And why they did it was because um, the church, um, it was the Palisades Community Church in Washington, DC had been founded almost a hundred years ago as a ecumenical community for people in the neighborhood to send their kids to Sunday school. They didn't care whose name was on the door, but they were glad that their kids could have some Christian education. And what they discovered (laughs) was that people don't want Sunday school in the same way that they wanted a hundred years ago for their kids, but people still want places to learn and to serve and to gather. And so that's what this new hub nonprofit is about. It's a non-churchy, I say a non-churchy church in the sense that it's not under any sort of religious programming, but they're still going to use the building and all its assets for places for people to have educational programs and people Mm. to connect in gathering spaces. And I just, I think that the church like that has to evolve um, and not say it has to be under this very particular umbrella that we like and that makes us feel good about our traditions. Sometimes it's not going to be what we think it is, but yeah, it's going to be what people need. Yeah. And that honestly sounds like a reframing of what people conceive as what church is. Cause I think some people, when they say church, they mean the body and what we do in the community. And some right. people, when they say church mean a little bit of that, but also it's wrapped up into the memories inside these walls 
right. of weddings and funerals and that one message that, you know, it's, it's wrapped up in all these other things that right. are right or somewhere to go on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. Right. Like <laughs> and just sit in the pew that their great grandfather sat in, you know, <laughs> see, I'm that bad Baptist that if my wife will let me, we sit in a different seat every time. And I know it makes everyone uncomfortable. And I love I, it. I, I absolutely love it. And it That's also great. makes my wife uncomfortable. <laughs> so uh, I don't love that as much. So if you could add a chapter, because you in here you talk about infertility, uh, mental illness, which we haven't really touched on, domestic violence, racism, sexuality, what would you add? If you could write it again I mean, today. I could write a whole other book, like part two. If, mm. if, um, what would those topics her? be? Huh? What would some well, of the be? one topic that I had done some work on that I would have loved to put in the book, but decided it was probably too much was abortion. Mm. Um, I would have really loved to have written about abortion um, in particular, because I know that it's such a divisive issue. Mm. Um, you're pro-life, pro-choice. The two shall never speak at one another, often not with kindness or civility at all. Mm-hmm. Um And I've encountered a ministry called, well, I say ministry, but it's not explicitly Christian, um, called Exhale. And it's, its entire mission is to serve those who have been through abortions. No judgment, um, but knowing that they need support and care and love and need to be humanized for Mm. what they've experience, no matter if they think it was the best decision they ever made, or they regret it with all their heart, they deserve to to have the support they need to go on to live their lives. And um, I, I was just so impressed with that and, and how, how we just dehumanize abortion. Um, yeah. and, and it's deep ties to the Catholic church and the evangelical church. But I know that that might've made some people not pick up my book at all because of how polarizing it is. So, <laughs> it, you know, but. well, I mean, whatever. Well, I, I have to tell you, in. I have a colleague who said, okay, are, are you getting, how are you feeling? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, you're becoming that girl. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? Well, you keep writing about all this like weird stuff. I don't, not sure you're going to be like accepted in these like mainstream oh, darn. You know, settings. And I'm like, well, <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know, I mean, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a wide river. Every time I have an episode about something that I think nobody cares about but me, I get many, many emails with people like, yes, I've been thinking about that for freaking years. Yes. And thank you for this, this, this resource, that resource. What else can I read? Because nobody's saying it, but everybody's asking those questions. I also don't think it's as simple. And you probably don't either. Like you're not pro-life or pro-choice because you're either anti-abortion, you're probably anti-abortion or pro-choice. Maybe that's a better binary. Because mm-hmm. pro-life is something entirely different than abortion. I mean, it's, anyway, abortion is something I've been learning a lot about and the complexity of how so much about our history with abortion in this country is really not about abortion, you know? Yeah, uh, I heard, and I don't remember, I listen to a lot of podcasts just because I have like a 45-minute drive to work. And so that's, I get tired of the same 23, it's right over the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's, it's, it's a gorgeous drive, but I get tired of the same 27 songs. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> this is from a few years ago and they were talking about, and this has nothing to do with your books. I apologize. Um, but it is, I think, related to abortion. So they had said the way that the law was written is you, you can't abort after so much time. Mm-hmm. After it's no longer, so it's, it's fine until it's medically a viable, you know, baby. Mm-hmm. But they said realistically, they can 
pretty much do the math. And within a few decades, realistically, there may not come a time where the baby could not be made viable with medical advances outside of the womb, even for a long amount of months and, and be perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, you know, it, it may fix itself where you don't even know that you're pregnant until you know that you're pregnant and then it's already medically viable. So it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. And I was like, that's because they could mathematically go, yeah, we're watching exponentially as science catches up. So we might not even argue about this later. It could right. be something. I was like, oh, I don't know. It's just a big the thing. Law, the laws are so messed up. And the other thing I wish, um, there, stay tuned, there might be a volume too, but I would love to write about sexual abuse. Um, mm. You know, domestic violence is one thing, some sometimes connected to sexual abuse, but the history of sexual abuse in the church and not mm. wanting to talk about that is... A, That's probably a book by itself, not a chapter. Uh, probably so. Yeah, it's a really painful um, <laughs> yeah. issue. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a big topic. I ask this question of everyone, and so you you probably were expecting it because you said you listened to an episode, but what do you say when you try to explain what God is? I think my favorite word is mystery. Um, I wouldn't have said that years ago. Mm. I would have spouted out some, some big seminary words that I learned or, <laughs> or something <laughs> um, that not the average person would understand, or maybe I wouldn't even understand myself. But I think in my own journey of, of, of being a person of faith and living life in all its complexity. As much as I think I know, I never really know. And as much as I think I've heard or I'm doing the thing that I'm supposed to do, I don't really know. But I, I do believe in the the goodness of the mystery of God and that, you know, I, I, I know that I'm still a Christian, even after all the deconstructing that I've done of my faith, um, because I, I believe in in death and resurrection and then the hope that comes um, through that story um, that the worst thing that happens to us is never the end of the mm. story. And that's a mystery. Mm. I mean, who would have thought, I mean, it makes no sense. Mm. Like how can the worst thing, you know, turn out to be the best thing. And I, I've had dark chapters in my own life where I thought this is the end. My, like my life is over. This is, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. God must've forgotten my name, Yeah. but even still um, some, some good things come out of it and things that I couldn't even have seen if I hadn't just stayed in the story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That'll preach. The worst thing that could happen is, is not, is not, uh, that'll, yeah, there you go. That's a sermon right there. That's what happens. When well, you, you know, once I, I, one Easter sermon, you know, cause it's always like, you got to have the big, you know, you got to be big and impressive That's on Easter. Everybody comes. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it's the same story. So what are you trying to say? <laughs> Um, it's, this is like every pastor, you know, the Saturday night before Easter, what am I going to say? Um, (laughs) but I remember one Easter sermon, I told the story, you know, I was preaching on the, the Mary text where Jesus encounters Mary in the garden. And I talked about, um, you know, her experience of, of having this personal resurrection. Like she got to see Jesus personally and how I think that resurrection comes to all of us in a very personal way. And I, I talked about the time that I, I, I declared to the universe, we were in the, the throes of like deep infertility struggles and lots of loss and pain. And I said, God, I just don't believe in you. Mm. It's not something you, you really want your pastor to say much less say on Easter Sunday, but this is what I was telling them. Um, but how I had, you know, an equally powerful experience of feeling like um, what I 
what I felt next was God saying, you know, you can say and believe a lot of things, but you can't say that I'm not here. Mm. And, and that it was this moment of like, okay, okay, okay. And, and, and then, you know, in the coming days and weeks, a community, which I call, you know, incarnation of people being present for me, showing me back to my faith and back to God and back to wholeness and healing because of how they showed up for me and cared for me in my, in my pain. And, Hmm. and so, you know, I think we, we can have times of like deep doubt and, you know, I I would love to hear more pastors tell me about the story when they didn't believe in them because I I think we we all kind of face that at one point or another. That's the bulk of the Bible. I think it's like 77% of the Bible is people yelling at God being like, what are you doing? If you're even real, come on, what are you doing? Yeah, I forget who it was. It's been a while, probably over a year. Someone said a quote that reminded me of what you just said, where to be in a faith community is, is meaning that sometimes you get to say, I can't do this right now. I don't even know what I believe. And then the community coming around behind you and saying, that's okay. We will carry your faith with you for a time. Oh, yeah, we will I, carry it for you. Yeah. And when you're ready, we're right here and you can have it right yeah. back. Yeah. 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 I have friends. I'm like, can I borrow some of your faith that this is going to be okay? Because I got enough. Yeah. Sometimes they're like, well, I don't have any for you right now. Can you go to someone else? <laughs> yeah. I'm all like, tapped okay, out. <laughs> Let me know if they have extra. And then bring me yeah. Some. <laughs> Where's yeah. the extra resources? Yeah. yeah. So the book is out when, where do people go to do all of the things that they should be doing on the places? Yeah. So um, easiest is to go to Elizabeth Hagen, um, H-A-G-A-N mm-hmm. <laughs> dot com slash rape church. And you can find all the resources about where to buy it. Um, I'm really excited about helping to shepherd a group of churches this fall. You know, it's a time when everyone's kind of getting back in the swing of things of I'm excited about our churches that are signing up to be launched churches for being a brave church mm-hmm. and that I'm willing to either be with them in person or be with them virtually as they do their brave church group or groups. Um, and really, you know, start a movement of, of churches that are talking about these things. And, and the real crux of the book is that it's one chapter. There's so much more to say yeah. on each of the topics. And I'm really glad there's lots of resources in the book to keep talking and, for people to explore, you know, that say it better than I ever could. Um, yeah. But I, I hope that some places, um, some places that even surprise themselves, <laughs> take on this mission this fall with me and um, sign up to be a break church yeah. um, and do this work together. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, I appreciate both your willingness to reschedule and for your time tonight. I'm sure it's a, it's a detriment to your family and your husband and everyone else that are like, ah, fine, I'll put the kids to bed. So I appreciate no, you. No, thank you for giving me a night off. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, it's, it's my <laughs> no, pleasure. No, like five times for like extra tuck-ins or water, you know? <laughs> uh, my, uh, yeah, I'm at the point now where all of our kids are old enough that um, I'm like, just go in there and get your own water. It's I'm not getting out of the bed. You can you can go do it. I'm not doing it. But <laughs> the, light, the light's not on. Well, figure it out. You know where the switch is. So, well, good. Thank you again so much. I appreciate it, Elizabeth. Thank you. The color of midnight when tears fall but meteorites and shaded hue of eyes. It was a joy speaking with Elizabeth. A pure joy. I laughed a lot, giggled a little bit. I'm not afraid to say that I giggled. I really hope that maybe 
you can help foster in your faith communities or in your families brave conversations because to not do so, I think we risk so very much, so very much. So today's episode was produced by me in my basement. I say that sarcastically, but it is more importantly produced by the patrons of the show. Kathy Bruce, welcome to the family there. Now, it's something you all should do, and it is one of the best ways to support the show. I get it if you can't do it, but if you can, consider kicking a few bucks a month, or you can get a discounted rate if you do it per year. You'll find links for that in the show note. Huge thank you again to the music for today's episode provided from Remedy Drive. And I've got David actually coming on the show again here in the next few weeks, and that should be out at some point. Who knows? But as the season of right now, be that early summer or early autumn, as I look at the numbers for the downloads on the show, I pray you blessings. And I really hope the next few months are fantastic and maybe recharging and energizing. We'll talk soon. Yes, sir.